Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her, that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for twelve years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and had spent all she had. Yet instead of being better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Do not be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion, with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the girl, where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talia kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to it. The pastor now to Brian, who's going to be Talk to us on this passage. Thanks, Jack. Um, hey, everyone. Let me add my warmest welcome to you. If it's uh, your first time here, maybe you're visiting because you saw one of the posters, or maybe um, a friend brought you along today. And if that's you, a really warm welcome to you. I'm really glad that you're here. Now, over weeks four and five of this semester, this week and next week, we're doing a special series at EU Public Meetings. We're calling it God With Us. And that title comes from the prophet Isaiah. Seven centuries before Christ, he predicted that a young woman, a virgin, would give birth to a child, and his name would be Immanuel. Emmanuel. It's a Hebrew name that means God is with us. And then centuries later, when Jesus had come and his disciples reflected on the story of his birth, and not just the way that he was born, but his whole life, and the way that he talked about himself and the claims that he was making about himself, 
they would recognize that Isaiah's prophecy made so many centuries earlier had now been fulfilled in this one person, Jesus Christ. This person, they would say, Jesus of Nazareth, is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, in the New Testament, the Apostle John writes, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So if you're asking this question, how can I know God? If you're wondering, what is God like? What does he do? What does he think and what does he feel? You're not going to know. I'll tell you some things that I'm not going to give you the answer. You're not going to know God by conducting a scientific experiment on the universe. You're not going to know God by digging into the psychology of why people believe in God. You're certainly not going to know God by just dreaming up in your own head what you think God is going to be like. John says, and the entire New Testament is consistent on this, you can know God through a person. Jesus is God incarnate, God with us. So if you really want to get to know God, if you want to know what kind of person he is, what makes him tick, the things that he cares about, the things that he gets angry about, what he thinks of us, then you better get to know the life and the teaching, the character and the claims, the deeds, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's why the New Testament contains not one, but four biographies of Jesus's life. They, um, they list out the, the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus. These biographies, we call them Gospels. The Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today we're looking at what many historians consider to be the very earliest of these biographies. It's the Gospel according to Mark. And Mark tells us about a particular episode that we're looking at today in Jesus's life, where the stories of two people are intimately intertwined. And in this episode, like all of the other recorded episodes that we have, this reveals something to us about Jesus, and therefore it reveals something to, to us about who God is. And basically, I want to do two things today. The first thing I want to do is just walk thoughtfully through this story, what happened on this particular day in Jesus's life. And then I want to offer some reflections on what I think this shows us about God. And if you've got questions, I'd really love for you to jot them down and to ask me afterwards. Uh, I'll be around for a little while afterwards as well. Well, let's start with the story of what happened. So Jesus, no matter which account you read of him, he's a remarkable guy. Now, he's born in the backwaters of nowhere, but at some point in his adult life, we think in his 30s, he starts traveling and teaching. And he gets a reputation very quickly. He becomes known because he speaks in a way that no other teachers of his day would ever dare to speak. The other teachers would always quote their sources. They would always be careful to reference the other teachers of the past. But when Jesus spoke, he thought he was the very mouthpiece of God. When he taught from the Old Testament Bible, he had complete conviction about how to interpret it. When he spoke about ethics, he laid out a standard that was so high that even the most righteous, most religious people in society of the day said it's impossible to fulfill that standard. 
And yet also at the same time, he became known for spending time with sinners, pronouncing forgiveness on people who were seen as the most sinful or seen as the most sinful in society. And so at the same time, he held himself with this self-important authority. And yet also, he's so tender, so gentle, so relatable. People had never seen anyone like him. More than that, he was known for doing miracles. And he's, in particular, he's known for doing miracles of healing. And so he made the blind see. He made lepers clean. He cast out demons. These were things that were really serious, chronic, debilitating problems. Problems without any known cure. The only way to solve these problems was supernatural intervention. And so the word is spreading about this guy who's teaching like no other person, who's hanging out with sinners like no other person, and who's got this ability to heal miraculously. And so Jesus always manages to draw a crowd. And so at the beginning of our episode, this scene, he's just stepped into town, fresh off the boat, and there's already a crowd waiting at the arrival's gate. Straight away, there's a medical emergency. Jairus, he's the synagogue ruler. He pushes through the crowd and he falls at Jesus's feet. My daughter is dying. Now, we're told that Jairus is a leader in the synagogue. What that means is that he's a person of prestige. He's a person of status. He's got some clout in the community. He's well-respected, probably, in the Jewish community. He's a person with some means, most likely. But see how he humbles himself. He falls to his knees in front of Jesus, and he begs. And how could he not? We learn later that his daughter is 12 years old. She's about to become a teenager, but he says, my little daughter, my baby girl, she's dying. And Jesus is compassionate enough to go with him. You can see the whole crowd following along. They're following Jesus and Jairus as they go. The people are craning their necks to see if they can get a glimpse of this guy who's been known for all of his teachings and his healings. How is it all going to unfold? But then we're introduced to another person. There's a woman in the crowd. And we're told that she's been subject to bleeding for 12 years. And she's got a chronic illness. Now just imagine for a moment that you've come back to uni. It's week two and you get really sick. You get so sick that you have to take the entire week of uni. Not only that, you stay sick and you're still sick at the end of the semester 12 weeks later. Now that's 12 weeks. Multiply that by 52, and that's 12 years of sickness. Can you imagine how painful it must have been for this woman to live with this sickness? It's worse than that, because in the ancient Near Eastern culture, this woman didn't just have a physical problem, she had a social problem as well because her bleeding would have made her ritually unclean. What that means is that she would have had to separate herself from the rest of the community. And it was common back then, and pretty common today actually, for someone to look at a person like this woman, who's been sick for a painfully long time and there was no healing, and just think, she must be a sinner. 
This is the consequence for doing something really wrong. And by the way, that's not at all what the Bible says, but there's plenty of people back then and today who think like this. Well, 2,000 years ago, it's not like people had the kind of medical knowledge that we have today. But doctors back then didn't study for half a lifetime, and they didn't get to. There are probably a lot of quacks out there as well, making a buck off sick people. Well, this woman had tried them all. She had spent all her money, and there was no healing. She got worse and not better. She's so sick, she's an outcast in society. She's living in absolute poverty. She is desperate. Now, she's heard about Jesus, and she thinks, if I can just touch his clothes, then I'll be healed. Now, there's no particular sophistication about her faith at this point. She just knows that she needs to get Jesus. Now, she would have had to push her way through some different people in the crowd to get to Jesus. And she reaches out and she touches his cloak. And the very moment that she touches his cloak, she knows that it's worked. It's a miracle. Twelve years of bleeding has finally come to an end. Now, I want to just stop here and just reflect because this woman is a woman of incredible faith and incredible courage. Here she is, a nobody of nobodies. She's weak and broken and desperate. And she has the boldness, the tenacity to go right up to the most famous person on earth at this moment and touch him. To do that takes a real kind of bravery. And it takes a childlike faith. And what I mean is this, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, they were in Australia last year, and they visited, of all places, Dubbo. And so, and as you know, when royalty comes to town, you, they, there's a protocol about how to treat them. We give them the royal treatment. We roll out the red carpet. We make sure that there's the royal guard. It's a high security event. There's protocols about how you're supposed to speak, how you're supposed to address them, how you act, how you show honor and respect. Now, I, maybe some of you have seen this clip of a five-year-old boy who got to meet Harry and Megan. He just goes in for the hug. And then watch this. There you go, give a little beard stroke. A hug for Megan. Another one for Harry. Rub his hair a little bit. Here's a boy who breaks all the rules. Um, here's a boy who breaks all the rules. He's got no regard for what you're supposed to do. He's going in for the hug. And this is the beauty of a childlike faith. There's safety in that moment of being able to do what is utterly inappropriate and so surprisingly intimate. That's the woman touching Jesus. But Jesus won't leave it there. He realizes what has happened. He turns around. He looks for the woman. The disciples don't know what's happened. The crowd doesn't realize that anything has just gone on. But when Jesus turns around, the woman knows that Jesus knows. 
And so it takes a second act of courage, a second act of humility for her to reveal herself and to share her story. Jesus stops for this woman and he gives her utter dignity when he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. We could say equally, your faith has saved you. He says, go in peace. And in the Bible, this word peace is about wholeness and completeness. Jesus is saying, be whole again. Be freed from your suffering. Yes, but also be restored to society. You are on the edges, but now you are known and you are seen. And you have the same dignity in Jesus' eyes as the person who has charge over the synagogue, Jairus. This is a powerful message in our day, but it was radical in Jesus' day. But just as the woman is being saved, so Jairus' baby girl is dying. It may, well very, it may well be that the very delay that was caused by stopping for this woman prevented from get, Jesus from getting to the girl just in time. The messengers come from Jairus' house to bring the news. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? In saving a life, a life has been lost. One prayer is answered, another prayer goes unanswered. And this is our world, isn't it? Some people are healed and some people aren't. Some people overcome their hardships, but some just get crushed. The best we can do and the best we can hope for is just to do what we can. The utopia where no one gets left behind is just a dream that remains an unfulfilled dream. But what we might consider impossible, Jesus does not consider impossible. His is an unreasonably optimistic defiance of the facts. The girl is dead, they've just reported, but Jesus says, don't be afraid. He says, just believe. And with that command, Jesus shows us that we cannot treat him merely as just another good teacher, another moral example. Because a, good, a person who is essentially saying, as Jesus is saying in this moment, I can raise the dead, he's not just saying, do what I teach. He's not just saying even, do what I do. He's asking us to respond to him. And either he is crazy, or he really has the power of the creator of the universe. Either he's goofy and deranged, or he really is God with us. Good moral teachers don't make claims like this. And so despite the news that the girl is dead, Jesus has the tenacity to press on anyway. They reach the house and it's the scene of a funeral. The, those who are there are wailing and crying. And Jesus, quite rudely it seems, brushes them off and brings just a few people, the parents and his closest disciples, into the house where the little girl is. Now some of us haven't yet had the experience of knowing someone personally who has died. When I was a teenager, my grandmother died uh, after she got cancer. But I'm almost certain that there is someone in this room, and maybe some people in this room, 
who've had to go through the death of a parent, who've had to experience the death of a close friend, who perhaps even have experienced the death of a sibling. And if you have experienced that, and I know people who have, there's a profound grief that stays with you for an awfully long time. Can you imagine what it would be like for a mom and a dad to have to bury their 12-year-old daughter? And then Jesus does the impossible. Jairus and his wife are right there. They're grieving over the dead body of their little girl. And Jesus, with such tenderness, takes her by the hand and says, Little girl, get up. And by the way, Mark's gospel, you might know, is written in Greek. But it's a testament to the emotional energy of this moment that Mark records for us. Actually, Jesus' original words in his mother tongue in Aramaic, Talita kum, get up, little girl. And straight away she's breathing. Her eyes are open. Her sickness is banished. She sits up and she can even walk. No wonder Mark writes that they were overcome with amazement. Well, do you want to know what God is like? Um, the Bible's claim is that Jesus is God with us. And so what I'd like you to do is just turn to the person next to you now and ask this question. What does this story tell us about God? I'll give you a minute. gonna finish a little early. Do you think it's appropriate to do question time? Maybe I'll just take a couple of questions and I think it's best if you do not. Yeah yeah. I will pray. Um, but I won't I won't lead people in this in his prayer. Yeah I but I'll just pray. Okay then I probably do need to pray at the end if you're praying what's in general. Yeah I think that's fine. Yeah 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 um, yeah, you can invite people to come talk to me, or, or yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or actually, if you could do also just a plug for Uncover again, to say, hey, this is, this is a great way of following up. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Um, here's what do, what do we learn about God? These, here's one thing. God has no boundaries. On this particular day, there are two very different people who come to Jesus. One is a privileged and respected and a powerful man. The other one is a poverty-stricken, outcast, ritually unclean woman. 
Now the thing is, here in Sydney, there are many of us, if we saw a woman like that today, she would be invisible to us. We wouldn't talk to her, wouldn't take any interest in her, because we wouldn't even see her. Of course we know that people like her exist, but it's an inconvenience to our lives to acknowledge her, to see her, to know her. And then maybe on the other hand, there's some of us, and maybe a smaller number, who really do know this woman, who have spent time with her friends, who know and feel the tragedy of her situation. And if that's you, people like this tend to look at people like Jairus, the synagogue ruler, the righteous, the privileged, the religious types, with a look of utter contempt on their faces. So many, world, so, so, so many of the world's problems might be fixed, we think, if those people had enough heart to care. You see, we all do it. We all create boundaries. We all draw a line in the, sa- in the sand and we put labels, us and them, on either side. But not Jesus. Do you want to know what God is like? He's equally tender toward the rich and the poor. He doesn't spurn the outcast, but neither does he write off the privileged. He accepts man and woman, insider and outsider, clean and unclean. He refuses to draw boundaries where we would draw boundaries. There is one criterion, and it's not keeping the Ten Commandments. It's faith. It's having enough trust to come to Jesus and fall on your knees before him. The stories that are recorded in the New Testament show us that the God who was embodied in Jesus is compassionate. He will not turn you away, no matter who you are, if you come to him with childlike faith. Well, here's something else we learn about God. He intends to restore humanity to its true state. And what I mean is this. Here's a woman who's lost everything, her money, her health, her status, her dignity. And she would have been satisfied just being healed of her disease, invisible to Jesus, invisible to the world. And what I find so remarkable about about this story is that Jesus rearranges his schedule for her. He has to endure the painful message. Sorry, um, uh, he stops for her. He sees her. He listens to her. He knows her story. He acknowledges her and he pronounces peace to her. He restores her. Jesus makes her whole. And here's a man who wants his daughter to be made well, to be healed of her sickness, and he doesn't get what he has asked for. He has to endure the painful message that his daughter has died, and he wasn't even there with her at the end but he gets more than he hoped for. More than healing of a disease, she's raised from death. She's restored. She's made whole. And see, Jesus shows us that God does not intend to leave us the way that we are. He intends to restore us, to make us whole. Do you want to know what God is like? Here's one last thing. He's intertwining our lives with his See, Mark tells us this story of two people. They don't know each other, but their lives and their fates are intimately woven together. From the moment that Jesus is faced with one moment of desperation, 
and then another, these two lives are intertwined. To stop for the one is to delay the other. To see and acknowledge and give dignity to the one is to let the other languish and perish. As 12 years of sickness are restored to health and life, so 12 years of life fall through sickness into death. There's more. Because according to the Old Testament law, physical touch can be very significant. When something that was clean touched something that was unclean, what was clean would become unclean. So through a Jewish set of eyes, when the bleeding woman touches Jesus' clothes, Jesus should become unclean. When Jesus takes the dead girl by the hand, he's touching a corpse. That makes him unclean. And this is the paradox that the opposite happens. The woman is made clean. The dead girl is raised to life. How this is possible is a complete paradox in the mind of the good Jew. How can Jesus do these things and remain pure? And yet, don't you see also that in doing these things, God is intertwining his life with ours. That in Jesus, Jesus, God hasn't just taken on flesh and bone, but he comes right up to the tragedies of life. He puts his finger on our wounds. He forces us to acknowledge that he knows. He sees. He's heard our cries. The answer to the paradox is that Jesus' compassion does come at a cost. The very same prophet Isaiah, who predicted that the virgin would give birth to the child and his name would be Emmanuel, also predicted that he would take on all the pain and the suffering that belonged to the world. He would die our death in our place. His life would be so intertwined with ours that he would die our death for us. The curse that belonged to us would become his. The cost of Jesus bringing life to Jairus' daughter and to this woman and to every other person that he healed and forgave and exercised, the cost of compassion was his own death. But the New Testament also claims that Jesus rose from the dead. And in that resurrection is a promise that pain and suffering and death can and will come to an end. And so the offer of God is this, that he has intertwined his life with ours so that we can intertwine our lives with his. He has come to us. Will we come to him? This is the choice that we face. We can intertwine our lives with Jesus by trusting him in his goodness and his compassion, or we can ignore him, we can disentangle ourselves from him, we can have his future, or we can have ours. Now, if that sounds appealing to you, the first step is just to talk. If you come along today and you're new, you're not a Christian, come and introduce yourself to me. I'd love to meet you. And please keep the conversation going with your Christian friends and ask all your questions. Pray to God. 
and tell him that you need compassion. Tell him that you need Jesus. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us now. I'm going to pray for all of us. And if you agree, then you can say amen at the end. It just means, yes, I agree. Let it be. So would you please bow your heads? Our Heavenly Father, you, you've intertwined your life with ours by coming in the person of Jesus. He shows us who you are. Lord, we pray because we know that we need you. We need your compassion because we've rejected you. We need your forgiveness because we've sinned against you. And we pray that in your mercy, you might show your grace to us. I pray now, especially for those among us who are seeking Jesus, please have mercy and compassion on them that they might know Jesus truly and so know you. And Lord, we rely on your love and we thank you for your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we do have probably a couple of minutes, so if you would like to ask a question, um, I'd love to, to give you an opportunity to do that. So I can probably take one or two questions. Yeah, great question. So the question was, um, in verse 32, Jesus looks around to see who had touched him. He says, who touched me? He's asking that question. Um, does, if he's God, how does that work? How does he not know? And I think the answer is, Jesus is uh, he, he's God with us, God in human form. And that does mean that he has particular limitations with, with being a human. But at this particular moment, I think that what he really wants is for that woman to show herself. He's in, actually inviting her at this moment to take that extra step of faith and courage to come before him and to tell her story. And in that moment, she's seen and known and, and she's restored even in that act. And so I, I think that is the reason why that happens in this case. 